Welcome to It's All Political on 5th and Mission. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. We're about a month out from the midterm elections, and everybody is waiting to see who will control the House and Senate. But my guest today, Steve Phillips, has always been looking at the long game. He's a best-selling San Francisco progressive author, and he writes about how to win a civil war in America that has never ended. His new book is called How We Win the Civil War. Phillips is the founder of Democracy in Color, a political media organization dedicated to race, politics, and the multicultural New American majority. It's working at forming a voting coalition of people of color and progressive whites. He was an early supporter of candidates like Stacey Abrams and a guy named Barack Obama. And he says Abrams in particular has shown the blueprint for how this coalition can win. So what does Phillips mean when he talks about the Civil War never having ended? Well, just this week, a white Republican senator from Alabama had this to say to a mostly white audience at a Donald Trump rally in Nevada. Here's Tommy Tuberville. Some people say, well, they're soft on crime. No, they're not soft on crime. They're pro-crime. They want crime. They want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bullshit. They are not owed that. I asked Steve Phillips, what do Tommy Tuberville's comments reflect about the past, the present, and if unchecked, the future of the Civil War? The core animating force in U.S. politics today is this remaining, enduring existential battle over is this primarily a white country or is this a multiracial democracy? And that's the essence of what the actual Civil War was about. And that's what people have continued to perpetuate and continue to carry on this fight. So make America great again is really just make America white again. And so you have all these usually coded languages of crime and CRT and immigration, which are all ways to send signals to white voters that they should be afraid of people of color and they they should rally to the Republicans or whichever particular white leader as a defender of the white way of life and the defender of the notion that this is fundamentally, first and foremost, a white nation. Pepperville just happens to be inarticulate. He didn't usually get the memo around how he's supposed to talk about these things in more coded fashion. But the essence of the message is the same. It's the same message that elected Trump, and it's the same message that backs most of Republican politics in this country. You mentioned the word confederates, and you use that throughout the book. And I want to I want you to clarify that, what you, exactly you're saying, because you write, you know, quote, we will not overcome until we govern as though we are under attack, until we finally recognize that the time has come to finish the conquest of the confederacy and all that represents. You know, race, as you say, it's a bigger part of politics than ever today. Talk about that and a little bit about what you, when you say the word and use the word confederates and confederacy throughout the book. Right. I mean, it's ironic, I guess, to a certain extent. When the publisher first, the New Press first approached me writing a second book, I said, why don't we use the Civil War as a metaphor to describe U.S. politics? But the more I got into it, as well as the more as events unfolded, it's not metaphorical at all, particularly when you have people carrying the Confederate flag, storming the U.S. Capitol on January 6th to stop the Democratic peaceful transfer of power. And so then the more I began to dig into the research and write the book, it became clearer that the Civil War itself, the original actual Civil War, the Confederates never stopped fighting. We all know, obviously, Lincoln was assassinated, but I didn't even know exactly when and exactly why. 
It was just five days after the supposed surrender at Appomattox uh, um, of the Confederates that John Wilkes Booth heard a speech by Lincoln saying that there should be some limited suffrage for African-Americans. Booth says that's N-word citizenship. That's the last speech he'll ever give. And the next day he goes and shoots Lincoln in the back of the head and assassinates him and kills him. And then you have the the North basically 10 years you know, into the Reconstruction after 100 years of slavery, returning control of the South to the slaveholders. So for 100 years after that, we had legalized white nationalism, white supremacy, and racism within this country to the extent that the definition of citizenship, which was established in 1790, of free white person, was upheld by the Supreme Court multiple times in the 20th century saying that Asians couldn't be U.S. citizens because they weren't white. So this has carried itself out throughout the history of this country, and we are still fighting the actual civil war around whether or not this is going to be a white country or whether it's going to be a multiracial democracy. That's the essence of Trump's power. That's the essence of Trump's leadership. He was at 4% in the polls before he started attacking Mexicans in 2015. Then he zoomed up to the front of the pack and then went into the White House. So when I say winning the Civil War, I mean finishing the original Civil War, which the Confederates and their ideological and sometimes genealogical descendants have never stopped fighting. Part of the book discusses that and part of it is sort of a, a how-to playbook for how to do that. And one of the one of the candidates you talk about is uh, Stacey Abrams who, uh, of course, is running for governor again in Georgia uh, right now. Uh, you were a very early supporter of Stacey Abrams. And by early, we mean more than a decade ago. I explain how you first met her here in your San Francisco offices, where we've chatted before, where she presented you. And, and what tell us what she presented to you and how that is a blueprint for how other candidates can win in red states. Yeah, so Stacey and I, are, we are introduced by our common friend, Ben Jealous, who was then the head of the NAACP. And so Stacey came out in 2012, and she had with her a PowerPoint presentation around how she was going to turn Georgia blue. And it, what she basically said was that we lose by 200,000 votes in Georgia on average. There are a million and a half eligible non-voting people of color I'm going to go register them and get them to vote. And that's the work that she began. And that's what we tried to support her on. And that's what we tried to rally other people to support her on over the course of several years, methodically uh, in an underfunded, underappreciated fashion, registering, mobilizing, and turning out people of color to vote to the point where in November 2020, I titled my Georgia chapter in the book, Georgia, that's not one we expected that's what Joe Biden said on election night when he was reading out the state of the results. He said, George, that's not what we expected because they had not <laughs> seen and hadn't appreciated the political potential of organizing, mobilizing, and changing the electorate by bringing people of color into the electorate. Stacey called me in 2021 after the first COVID bill went through. And I said, um, you took that, you know, first $10,000 that we helped raise for you and you turned it into $2 trillion to the American people? She says, I like to provide return on investment. <laughs> this In this midterm uh, election, which, you know, is, is happening uh, in, in a month, Republicans were generally emphasizing the economy and the high inflation rate uh, during the run-up to the, to the midterms. In the past few weeks, 
you increasingly see Republican candidates in battleground states talking about crime, rising crime, as they say. According to the FBI crime stats that came out the other day, violent crime has dropped by 1% from the previous year, driven largely by reduction in the number of reported robberies. Homicides went up last year. Now, as we know, living in San Francisco here, concerns about crime is legit. But what are Republicans doing here? Is this really about crime when they're talking about crime? No, it's one of the the most longstanding and stock approaches that they have used in terms of, again, how to scare white people. And that's the essence of the Republican um, playbook. When Bush Sr. ran against Dukakis in the 1988 presidential campaign, right? mm-hmm. this whole Willie Horton piece, person got out of prison and then he raped and killed a, a white person. For them, it's been a historically very effective proxy for the notion that Democrats and people are going to turn the country over to dangerous people of color and that white people have to be afraid. There were black code laws passed in the 1600s in this country on the same basis. You have to restrain the rapine nature of black people to, and they had passed specific laws to try to uh, protect whites. And then so it's the same Obviously, 400 years later, it must be they must think it's effective. And so they continue to resort to talking about crime because it's a very uh, easily digestible and understood code word that when they say crime, they mean white people be afraid. Democrats are talking about abortion and defending uh, democracy in the midterms. Is abortion rights an issue that can boost turnout among uh, uh, this, the coalition of uh, people of color, white progressives that that you talk about, uh, you've talked about for years, talk about in the book? Is that an issue that can bring out more voters in that coalition? Or does it just make, as, as one consultant told me several months ago, people vote harder? Well, they do vote harder, but it's also about they vote. And that's what we're seeing in terms of the wake of the of the Dobbs decision. Is that, and fundamentally, it all goes back to the, to the, to the fundamental reality that this battle around what is this country and who is this country for, that the MAGA crowd, the Make America White crowd, the Neo Confederates, they are a minority of people. The Confederates themselves were a minority. Only 11% of the whites in the country were in the states that originally decided to go to, to, to succeed from the Union. And so they tend to overreach and, and they proceed through undemocratic means, stacking the Supreme Court um, the way they did so that they can move this agenda, which is not a majority agenda. And so it's inflamed a broader swath of people who had not necessarily historically participated in politics. But the whole premise of what I tried to outline in my first book, Brown is the New White, is that there is a new American majority in this country, 75 to 80% of people of color. 35 to 40% of whites, that's a majority of the country. And more of those people are participating now in the wake of the of the Dobbs decision. That's what you saw in Kansas, which has not necessarily been the most progressive state in the country historically. And you're seeing it in different congressional races as well. So the electorate is animated and activated by uh, the attacks on reproductive rights. We will have more with author Steve Phillips after this break. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. 
Steve, I want to get your take on what's been going on in Los Angeles the last couple of days uh, around the time we're recording this. The audio of a private conversation between three Latino L.A. City Council members and a top labor leader in Los Angeles leaked and included a lot of racist, anti-black comments from the Latino council members. One of them, Nuri Martinez, stepped down as the head of the council right afterwards and shortly before we started recording this is taking a leave of absence. Let's listen to a little bit of those recordings, which were first reported by our friends at the Los Angeles Times. You're going to hear Martinez talking about the young son of council member Mike Bonin. Bonin is white. His son is black. And at one point, she refers to him in Spanish as a little monkey. It's like the oddest thing. It's like black and brown on this float. And then there's this this white guy with this little black kid who's misbehaved. Este niño has no... He's... They're not doing... Yeah, no. They're not doing... The kid is bouncing off the effing walls on the floor, practically tipping it over. There's nothing you can do to control him. And I'm just like, oh my God, I'm always here trying to parent this kid. I'm like, you can't do that. I said, no. Gustavo Arellano, the LA Times columnist wrote, quote, the latent fear the Latino politicians uh, care only about Latinos and will screw over other groups as our population continues to grow remains too real. People can say that's unfair because ethnic politics has always been a part of American democracy. But when you're now the majority, you're not supposed to act like those who previously oppressed you. What, what's your take on, on what those uh, politicians said and, and what it represents and, and what uh, Gustavo said here? Well, the, the I think Gustavo's points are well taken and it's very, very disappointing and it illuminates the kind of the next level challenges. And so I've been making the argument that in this fight between whether well, is this a white country or multiracial democracy, that coming together with progressive whites and people of color, we can actually win and move things forward. But there's like a next level of fight. And this is something, frankly, that we've seen in uh, San Francisco, that once you kind of break through that threshold about it's not just the white society or white community, it gets much more complicated and more challenging. And you really need the kind of leadership and you need to have people in each of the communities who are both rooted in those communities and have connection to an appreciation for the others if we're going to build a multiracial democracy. So we've seen it and just over the past, you know, my time in San Francisco, I got elected to the school board in 92. I remember 1990, 1992, and they had the lavender wave when you had the first uh, LGBTQ candidates getting elected, Tom mm-hmm. Amiano, Roberta Actenberg. And it was this big breakthrough. We finally got a, you know, uh, a gay person in the office by, was it 2005 maybe? But in terms of that, in around that time period, you had like four or five gay candidates running for mayor. And so you had a whole, it, it then becomes a different combination. And then we had challenges when I was on the school board between some of the conservative Chinese leaders trying to attack the desegregation order, which had been brought by the NAACP. So it becomes a complicated mixture of how do we build a society and proceed not from a notion of scarcity and pitting one, one another against each other, but building a multiracial society that works for everybody. And so it's a challenge. And that's what Los Angeles is facing now. Is there, and it's a failure of leadership to, it's a failure of the leaders from, frankly, the Latino community there to understand and embrace and build the intentional coalitions across racial lines. But that is the next level. That's the next frontier of really trying to build a truly multiracial society. 
Let's want to talk about uh, keeping the new majority uh, together. Joe Biden will make his decision after the midterms about whether he's running. Is he the best person to, to fight the Democratic uh, side of the next civil war? Well, those are two different questions. Whether Joe Biden should run in 2024, whether he's the best person. Well, to that's, that. <laughs> Good point. Uh, take 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 them both on. Give us a, give us a, a quick riff on both of those. I do think Biden is the best person for 2024 in that he had said a fair amount of self-awareness, which I think was accurate, that he saw himself as a transitional figure and a bridge between the prior era era to the new era. And so I think that's quite correct. And I don't think we're done going over that bridge and it's going to take more time. And so to then you immediately move to the succession battle in really be 2023, not even 2024, the election start, would start in 2023, is not going to be in the best interest, I feel, of the progressive movement in the country. And so I think we need more time to repair the damage from the Trump era and then to build out the various political coalitions that will then move us forward in 2028. So I I am hoping that he runs again and is in, you know, um, good condition to run again. And then a fairly robust, healthy, internal struggle will ensue over the subsequent four years around who is the best person to then lead us into the next era. Well, let's say Biden doesn't run. And two of the people who would be uh, candidates are two people you know well and have known for a couple of decades. One is uh, the, the next person who's up logically is, of course, Vice President Kamala Harris. We've known her for many years here in San Francisco. Her campaign imploded, though, uh, four years ago. She dropped out before the primaries even started. Even then, she was pulling fourth in her home state here of California, where she'd been elected statewide three times. Uh, her polling uh, approval rating is vice president's week. And then we have uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, um, another person you've known for a while. Uh, we like to say he's warming up in the bullpen, just in case, <laughs> just in case Biden, you know, pulls a hammy. Could he pull together this new majority coalition? And who would have a better chance of beating Donald Trump, Kamala Harris or Gavin Newsom? For one, I do think Gavin has really stepped up and provided very strong and admirable leadership and a kind of a counterweight to the, you know, Trump make, a, make America white crowd. So that's great. I think Kamala has been somewhat uh, constrained by her position in terms of being able to take more forceful stands in leadership in that um, in, in that role. We had talked about Stacey Abrams. I do think that Stacey Abrams is, I don't even like to use the word generational talent, but she is a, her level of sophistication and effectiveness in building the kind of coalition that can transform politics in this country has been proven now in Georgia. It's been absolutely proven where she did the work over the course of a decade to elect the literal successor to Martin Luther King to the United States Senate in ways that transformed the whole country and have made all kinds of policy possible, the first climate bill ever. None of that would have happened without the work in Georgia. And then I also think that, you know, Cory Booker ran in, in, in 2020, didn't also didn't win, but I think in terms of somebody who understands and can articulate the dynamics of the racial challenge that we're facing and then summon people to a higher place to build a more unapologetic multiracial society – Corey has that talent in ways that few other people do in national politics. We saw it around the Katanji Brown-Jackson Supreme Court hearings where he was defending her, you know, the final days of that. 
So he's, in terms of his leadership ability for a multiracial society, he is in a fairly small grouping of people who can articulate those issues as well. So that's part of what I mean by there's a, there's a number of people who have great talent and potential and ability. And so um, those are just some of them. But you were unwilling to pick among your children there. <laughs> I, I, I like to preserve some viability. There you go. My, there you right, go. So. The book is called How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. Steve, thanks for being on It's All Political on Fifth Admission. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. Steve Phillips' book is called How We Win the Civil War. Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Steve for joining me. Thanks as always to the King, King Kaufman, for producing this episode. And remember, no matter who you think would be the best candidate to take on Donald Trump in 2024, it's all political on Fifth and Mission.